Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is Behind the Scenes. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. My guest today is Brenda Rosso, who's manager of the Costume Design Center at Colonial Williamsburg. And this year we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of costume design at Colonial Williamsburg. Brenda, thanks for being with us. Sure. Can you talk to me about where costume starts at Colonial Williamsburg? The first costumes were used here in 1934 for the visit of um, President Roosevelt to dedicate Duke of Gloucester Street. And they were used on the docents, or what they called them hostesses at the time, at the Raleigh Tavern. There were about six women um, in that first group. It was probably the idea of James Coger, who was chief curator at the time. They were so successful that on November the 5th, Kenneth Chorley, who was then president of the foundation, decided that all um, hostesses in all the exhibition buildings should be wearing period-like costumes. And that's where it started. So and that's that, where it started, yeah. Six hostesses then to how many people in costume today? Over 800. Big change. That so is a big change. <laughs> who was making those first costumes? It was a Mrs. Cooley who actually uh, lived on Jamestown Road right across from where the business school is now. Um, the costumes at the time cost about $25 a piece. And the hostesses were given time off to, they were given an hour to walk down there um, and for their fittings and then walk back to their jobs. What did they look like, the first costumes? They decided to, um, it's interesting because they made the choice to dress them to the 1750s and 60s. And they had huge panniers, which are those side hoops. So there was this sort of flattened silhouette. What did they look like? How, how When you say they were really huge? Well, they were a body width. <laughs> They were as it was like three people standing together. That's how wide they were, um, just on the skirts. And so the silhouette—it's a—the silhouette was essentially a cone perched on an ellipse. And so you had these wide hoops that that were collapsible in, um, both in the period and and in 1934 they made them so you could pull the hoops up and pass through doorways. They're so wide that you couldn't fit through a doorway. You could, but in, in smaller houses like the Raleigh Tavern, some of the doors are not wide enough for the women to pass. They'd have to go through sideways. How has the representation of costume changed over time? Well, essentially, um, the first costumes are during the colonial revival period are very... Um, uh, they represent only sort of the upper echelon of colonial soci society, that 2 to 5% that uh, the gentry. Um, and it's, it's not a realistic depiction. Though they were somewhat realistic, they, they gave ambiance. They really weren't used as um, items which teach. The, the object really, really didn't teach because... They weren't using accurate, um, accurate construction methods. They weren't using the right foundation garments. They weren't using um, the correct materials. And they were only sort of depicting that very sort of thin line of, of gentry as opposed to the other 95% <laughs> that, that lived and worked here. So today your goal is to represent... Um, All strata of society. So it all has to do with the development of looking at costume as, um, as an object which, which is worthy of study. 
And that developed over the years. And probably in the 1980s, when antique clothing, instead of an art object, um, became sort of worthy in academia as an object worthy of study, um, that's when interpretation of clothing changed pretty dramatically. For instance, we actually study the antique to see how it goes together, to see how it fits on the body. And so we're really fortunate today in that we can study the antique, we can take a pattern off the antique, we can try and match the, the textile as closely as possible, and then we can mimic. And then we, um, we're fortunate in that we can recreate the, the item we can try and fit it on a modern body and then make those alterations to produce the product that, that we want. Talk to me more about the, the way that you're able to reconstruct clothing for um, the lower classes of society that you're trying now to represent more accurately. Well, ideally, um, you'd like this triangulation where there's, you have an, a written description of the item you'd have, ideally, what you'd like to have is a painting of the person or a depiction of a, the, the original garment um, and a person in the garment. So you can see how it fits on the body and what it's supposed to do and how it's supposed to hang and where it's supposed to fit close and where it's supposed to be loose. And then you'd have a letter saying, I had this garment made, da 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 da, da. <laughs> And then you'd also have the antique. That never happens. So you try it and um, you gather information from all all different um, areas. For instance, for to recreate slave clothing, we really sort of pretty heavily rely on runaway ads from the Virginia Gazette and from newspapers of the period. Um, because absolutely none of that survives. Now, there are a few, you know, drawings, line drawings, very few depictions of African Americans in English art. I mean, there are some, but, but not a whole lot. And they're usually in livery, or um, which is servant's attire. Um, so it's hard to get a, a real understanding of what um, your average enslaved person in, in the Chesapeake is wearing. Um, there are plantation owners that keep really, really great records. For instance, Thomas Jefferson tells exactly what he gives to whom. So there are some, we know what it's supposed to be, but we don't really know what it looks like. So what you do is um, you, if it says, well, we gave him three waistcoats, you determine of this particular fabric. Well, you'd probably know what the fabric looks like. You know what a waistcoat looks like. Um, and then you, you just sort of extrapolate from that what the, item, what the items look like. What kind of materials were used in the 18th century, and how, how much are we able to replicate that today? We've had pretty good success, actually, in finding materials that um, that were used in the 18th century. Uh, they're using silk, linen, wool, and cotton. Those are your those are your choices in the 18th century, and they sometimes blend those together. For instance, we have in the collection what they call the Virginia coat, which is made of a combination of cotton and wool. Um, now that's going to be pretty hard to replicate because it, some of these things have to be spun together. And we actually are um, working with the weavers right now to see if we can get that particular item reproduced, that particular cloth reproduced. And then there we have a really wonderful resource of being, a, being able to um, actually um, 
have access to items that, uh, types of fabrics that are, are normally not available on the open market, you know, um, Lindsay Woolsey. And, but we've found sources for tow linen. I think our biggest problem is, are finding linens of the right quality. Um, the decorator market, we've been really fortunate in the last 10 to 15 years in that the decorator market, especially for gentry wear, has, been, um, has really been heavily influenced by the 18th century. So we're able to find silks that, and satins that we can use on that, on the gentry clothing. So over time, we've gone from representing mainly the gentry to including other strata of society, strata of society. enslaved and working class folks. Mm-hmm. What's the new chapter? What, what are you doing today? The road we're heading down um, is a more diverse picture of Williamsburg in the 18th century. For instance, we have the Native American initiative that we just finished working on. And that was fascinating because it was, you know, I've, We've done some reproductions before of that, those particular items, um, but we've not to that extent. I mean, we had to build two complete outfits for five people. Um, so we built trade shirts and um, quilled moccasins and um, breechcloths and things that we're not really used to, to building. Um, we really need to do a lot more research on children's clothing. Um, we recently... Um, reconstructed the regimental coats for the Fife and Drum Corps for their 50th anniversary um, and for military programs as well. So we're trying to look at the historic area as a whole to see where the, uh, you know, where the weaknesses are in costuming. It's hard to imagine Colonial Williamsburg without costumed interpreters, and I think that speaks to the importance of costume mm-hmm. in interpretation. Well, if it's done well... Um, I think that clothing can be an amazing object to teach. Um, I think the most difficult thing is being able to read what that clothing says. You know, it can tell you so many things. It can tell you, uh, it, it, it speaks volumes about personal choice. You know, I chose to put this on this morning. It speaks volumes about the complexity of manufacture, how difficult it is to to put these things together. and. And when the public reads that, um, it just adds another layer to what we're trying to do here. Brenda, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. We like hearing from you. Send us a comment at history.org slash podcasts. Check back often. We'll post more for you to download and hear. <laughs>